Open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. I can't wait till I ask Tony Wood to, to pray again and do that. He, he chose, you know, I didn't tell him what to do. But y'all, he couldn't have picked a more controversial verse <laughs> than that verse. Women shall be saved through childbearing and did a fabulous job uh, explaining that. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. Last week we turned a corner in the book, right? Chapters 1 through 3, the, ble- the immeasurable blessings and privileges, the promises of God, yours, the weight of that upon us. Paul makes a turn in chapter 4 and he says, in light of those immeasurable blessings, now live your life this way. He goes to the immense responsibilities. Can we say that? I'll use this word, obligations in light of all he's given and done. He's going to spend the rest of the book using this term, walk. What does he mean when he says walk in a manner worthy? He's He's saying, live your life. You know, he's talking about behaviors, words, actions, and in fact, attitudes that underline those things. Live your life in a manner worthy of the weight and the calling with which you have been called. Now, he's going to make a turn here in chapter 4 again, this time, Uh, It is related not to the individual, but he's going to talk about the walk of the church. He's going to talk about what it looks like to walk in a community of faith. Uh, Many scholars consider Ephesians actually uh, the blueprint for the church more than any other New Testament letter. It's It's that letter that Paul clearly spells out. Here is how the church is to function and to what aim. It's not spelled out any more clear in any other book than in Ephesians. And in particular, I want to suggest the very verses we're going to look at today. Unfortunately, I think we would agree, if we look back over the history of the church, uh, we have in many ways strayed from the blueprints. Wouldn't you say? I mean, in some places we've added some rooms where there were no rooms. We've taken down a wall where there was a wall. We've overemphasized what's not even on the blueprint, and we've many times underemphasized, right, what's clearly in the blueprint. Klein Snodgrass, he's a professor at North Park Seminary in Chicago, and he has an excellent commentary on Ephesians, and he says this of the church, quote, To say the church is ineffective and has lost its influence is an understatement. A drive through a community to look at its churches is rarely comforting. Mainline churches are dwindling away and reactionary. Conservative churches are often unable to deal with the culture. Christ is muted or distorted beyond recognition. We may say that sounds a bit harsh. I would say... Pick up the newspaper, look at the... I would go, and you know, on a global scale, I think he's spot on. I'd love to say that fellowship's the exception, but that would be to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And not to diminish at all, you guys, you know, the, the goodness of God, that he, the, the ways that he's blessed us in spite of ourselves. Oh, my word, I don't mean to diminish that at all. But I also know this, we as a community of faith, I'm talking fellowship, we are in constant need, constant need of refocus, 
of realignment, of a recommitment, you see, to the blueprints as God has given them to us. In this passage, Paul is going to put us face to face with one of, and for me personally, I'll say this, if not the most significant contributing factor to the church's waning influence in the culture. It's not going to surprise you, not at all. But my prayer is that it'll honestly, it'll make us uncomfortable. I, my prayer is it'll, it'll shake us a bit such that we, we have to truly come to grips with our walk. How we're walking within the context of a community of faith. We're in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 13. And in this passage, Paul connects four things. You know, he always he generally thinks pretty logically in the epistles. And so he reasons, you know, there's this which connects to this, which connects to this, which results in this. This is very linear in his thought. Now, I don't often do this, but it, it just kind of lays out this way and it'll help you rem- remember these things. There, there's four parts, four links in a chain he connects. The first is the principle. I'm going to use these P words. There's a principle. It undergirds everything. Then there's a price that's paid for the truth of this principle. I'll explain it in a minute. There's the principle, the price. And then there's what I'm going to describe as the process. Principle, price, process. Well, how does the church function? What's the process? This happens in, this goes about. And then it's kind of like the last link is the product. Here's what's produced. You with me? So four parts of the passage. Verse 7 is the principle. Rather than reading the whole, I'm going to take it a piece at a time, if I may, this morning. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to start actually in verse 4, because here we're talking about the unity of the body. And then he transitions from unity to, if I can say this, diversity. Okay? Verse 4 says, There's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You hear that all, 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 unity, one, all, 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 verse 7. But, you know, know, there's unity, but there's also, what does he say? But to each one, you see, to each one, to you individually, to every individual person in the all, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Stop there. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, I want you to understand, in the context, we'll see this where it goes. He's not using grace here as in unmerited favor was given to you, that you are saved. He's not using grace in that context. He's using grace in the context of gift given. There's much the New Testament says about this. I'm not going to go into detail on it, just enough that we understand the context. He's talking about your spiritual gift. That, that, that when you place your faith in Christ, you were in, dwelt with the Spirit and you were given a gift. That's the principle. Okay. Each one of us has a gift. If you know Christ, you have a gift. That's the principle. Two things about that. If it's given according to Christ's measure, it's that Christ gives it. In other passages, the parallel passages remind us of this. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul writes, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You're given a gift for the common good. 
Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift. Again, I'm going to hammer on this. That's the grace you've been given here in verse 7. As each one has received a special gift, employ it. You see that? You're giving it. Now, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What is a spiritual gift? It's a divine enablement. It's a divine enablement given for the good of others and the glory of God. Very simple definition. Uh, you, it's not a skill. It's not, I got, a, I got the gift of singing. You know, it's not, you know, I can, I got beautiful handwriting. It's, it's, that's not, this is a divine enablement. It's something that prior to trusting Christ, you didn't have it. Now, often God will give a, a spiritual gift that aligns with your temperament and you kind of your wiring, you know what I mean? You're a teacher, you've been a teacher for 20 years, you come to faith in Christ, you find, I, I have the gift of teaching. It's, it, you didn't have the spiritual gift before, but you had the wiring and temperament and strengths and all that. That's generally how that can happen. But I want you to understand, before you trusted Christ, you did not have this particular grace. Two things about the grace I want you to note. If Christ gives it, you will never receive a gift more perfectly suited for you. Just think about that. You know, you know how hard it is to buy a gift for someone. <laughs> I just want it to be just right for them. I want it. Do you understand your spiritual gift is Secondly, I want you to consider this. The gift is yours, but it's for the church. Here's what I mean. Just keep this in mind because we'll come back to it. What you've been given is to be given. That's such a key principle in a spiritual gift. Can you imagine? Could you? This is you know maybe an odd connection here, but could you imagine that it, that you managed a billion dollar foundation? I mean, you had a billion endowment, a billion dollars, but you never gave any grants. Could you imagine that existing? It'd be illegal, quite frankly. But you go no, because it's there to be given. I want you to hold that thought principle. Each one of us has a gift. And then secondly, Paul speaks of the price. This can be somewhat confusing. I'm going to go through it, and and I don't think it's that hard to understand. I hope it's not for you as well. There's a price that Christ paid to secure the gift. That's verses 8 through 10. Paul says this, Therefore it says, which is another way of him saying it's written, the scripture says, and he quotes Psalm 68 verse 18. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all in all. Just keep this in mind. Some of these phrases might be a little confused. What, lower parts of the earth? What does that mean? (laughs) We keep the context in mind. If that's fuzzy, the context isn't. What's the context he's describing here? Here's clearly what we know. Quoting Psalm 68, that's a, that's a victory psalm. It, it, it's a song they would sing when the king came back from conquering the enemy. 
And you see, when the king went and conquered the enemy, when he came back, he had all the spoils of war, you know, material things. Do you know what he also had in his long line, the parade that would come through Jerusalem? He also had soldiers of his who were POWs in the enemy camp, and he rescued them, and he brought them out. And they're in the long line of the retinue. And what would they do? They would come to Jerusalem, and they would ascend, ascend to the temple. And what would the king do with that which he conquered, that which is now right, it's rightfully his, he would then give the gifts to his own. See, that's all he's describing here. And think about Christ. Christ, the print, you know, the, the, the price is that Christ paid a great cost to gift you. That's what he's saying here. What did Christ conquer? He conquered sin and death. Well, how did he conquer sin and death? Verse 10, he descended. He came down. Where? To earth. What happened on earth? He was crucified. He paid the penalty for our sins. He was buried. He was dead. He was raised again. And then some days later, after appearing to his disciples, after his resurrection, what happens in Acts 1.9? Which way does he go? Literally. He ascends. You see, this is a picture of redemption. Lower parts of the earth. He died. It's what it cost him to redeem us. He descended, he ascended, and in so doing, he secured, you see, gifts. He gave the gifts to his own. That's all he's saying. Now, connect this, because we're going to go into this next section. Who in the early church was the arch enemy of the church? I mean, if you said there's one person, man, that's a thorn in the church's side. I mean, he was out killing Christians. He's imprisoning them. He's got the right paperwork to do it. You can't stop him. Who was it? It's Paul. This guy writing the letter. And what happened to him? Well, because Christ descended, redeemed by his death on the cross, all who are his, and then ascended. You understand, there was a day when Paul's on his way to Damascus, and that became a reality for him. What happened in, 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 on that road to Damascus? Jesus, because he had conquered sin and death, specifically redeemed. What did, one of the songs we sung, I made a note of this. He redeemed his erring son, Paul. Now Paul is in the long train of the victorious King Jesus. And what does King Jesus do with this erring son who was under the influence of the enemy his whole life? but now has been brought back to the king. What does he do with Paul? He turns around and, as we'll see, he gives Paul to the church. You see how that flows. There's the principle. Every one of us gifted. Mm, Boy, there's a price because Jesus paid a great, great price to secure that gift for us. And in light of that, I'm just going to say this because I'll hit it at the end. I'm going to ask you to hold another thought. I don't think Paul ever got over the fact that it cost Jesus everything to redeem it. I think under the inspiration of the Spirit, that's why he included this here. I don't think he ever got over it. 
Because he knew, you see, that, you know, Israel's conquering kings. They came back. And you know what? You know the king that conquered? You know how he came back? Alive. (laughs) He didn't die. Jesus gave his life that he might gift us. Paul never got over it. And it's just a thought I want you to hold. Again, I'm having you hold these two thoughts in tension related to gifts. That it's, you know, that it's given to be given. And then this one. What we do with a gift says everything about how we value it. And it says everything of what we think of the gift giver. I mean, this is just logic. Don't raise your hand. But how many of you have gifts? You never even open the box. They're they're in the drawer. They never see the light of day. Unless you pull it out for a white elephant gift. <laughs> right? What, you know, does, what does it say about what you think of the gift? What does it say about what you think of the gift giver? It says everything. <laughs> That's the truth. We'll hold that thought. You've been given a divine enablement. It's the principle. It came to you at the greatest cost to God. That's the price. And then in verses 11 through 12a is the process. Now, now I want you to know right here we're getting into, okay, and now this is the church, and here's how it's to function and where it's to go and what it's to be about. Look at verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why did he give them? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, we'll stop here. This is the the process by which Paul is addressing how and to what end God designed the church to function. Paul makes a switch. You got to catch this turn he makes. Because in verse 7, he's talking about you've been gifted. You've been gifted. You know Christ, you've been, he's talking about the individual gifting. But he does switch here, and in verse 11, he, he, he comes back and he goes, now I, I want to talk about gifted leaders, gifted leaders that I've given to the church. Okay, So now he's talking about gifted leaders. And he names four pastor teacher you'll notice he doesn't say some as pastors some as he says some as pastors and teachers so they we consider that together apostles prophets evangelists pastor teachers because of the emphasis i want to focus on quite frankly here and we'll hit some of these at another time i'm not going to go take these apart apostles prophets evangelists pastors teachers these are the these are the lead the gifted leaders that have been given to the church and by the way If you look at Ephesians 2.20, it says the church was founded on the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So I will say this, in in the strictest technical sense of what a prophet and an apostle is, there are none today because it's the foundation. It's, you don't know, redo the foundation. No, they, Paul was an apostle and a prophet. They didn't have the New Testament, and so, you know, prophets received divine revelation and spoke it. We have the Bible now. Everybody good on that? We don't believe there are prophets and apostles in the strictest technical sense today. Certainly evangelists, certainly pastor-teachers. 
What I want us to see is, I don't want you to miss this. Gifted leaders are given to the church in order to, here it comes, equip the saints for the work of service. That word equip literally means to put right. It's a a medical term, it's used this way. It's broken bone needs to be equipped, needs to be set and put right. So now broken bone, you can walk on it. It's now useful, to be made useful. If I can be so direct, I'll say it like this. My responsibility as a pastor, teacher, pastor, by the way, is shepherd, you know, oversight. So pastor, teacher seems to be those who God gives the church who, 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 who provide care and oversight by the teaching of the word. I'll, I'll say, I think it's my, that's me. It's what, I'm one of them. My responsibility is by the spirit and through the word to make you fit for service, or if I can say it this way, and I think it's true in the text, it's to make you fit for ministry. You see, it's not the pastoral team does ministry for you. Pastoral team, pastor, teachers given to the church to equip you to do the ministry. We both do ministry. This is the DNA of fellowship. I mean, this is, this is why we're here. This is in terms of a church. If you're a guest here and you want to know, man, what, what, what are you guys about? Equipping the saints for the work of service. That's what we're about, truly. We've done it well at times. We've not done it well at times. Hadn't done it well. But I'm telling you, this is realign, recommitment, get the focus back on. Equipping the saints for the work of ministry. What you and I do are both ministry. Why do I say that? Because that's the work of service. Because whatever I do and whatever you do is this, to this end. To help people know Christ and to help them grow up in Christ. That's where Paul's going to go here. You understand? That's what we all do. Different functions in it, but that's what we do. Notice the product, the last thing. The end result. I mean, what happens? Here's one other way to say it. When saints are equipped, and then when saints, see, it's not the pastoral, when saints do the ministry, when saints do the work of service, what happens? That's what the product is in verses 12 to 13. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, here's the product, here's what happens. To the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What is the product? Can I say it? This just one, you know, three words. Christ-like maturity. That's the product. And he gives, you know, there's three things he says. Now, the, the, the you know, Christ-like maturity is going to, it's going to be marked by these three things. He does say this. It's going to be marked by the unity of the faith. That's, that's chapter 4, verses 1 and 3. Preserve the unity of the faith. How do we preserve the unity of faith? By being equipped and then by doing the work of service within the body. Unity of faith. He says, 
to come to the knowledge of the Son of God. And, you know, that could sound like, well, wait a minute, we already know Jesus. That's why we go, to, that's why we're in church. That's, we're, well, he's, he's using it in a much deeper way. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. And what he says here is not gnosis, but epignosis. It's an intense knowledge. It is literally so that you can come to a knowledge that lays claim on your behavior. This is like relational intimacy, you see, that's such that how you live is marked by your knowledge of this person. It shapes who you are and all you do, you see. A mature man, by the way, is, is that picture of completion, wholeness, wholeness in Christ. You know, this is, the, 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 the product is Christ-likeness in its fullness. You're like Jesus. You've matured into his fullness in all that he is. The principle, each one of us has a gift. The price, Christ secured it at great cost. The process, equipping service. And the product, Christ-like maturity for all of us. Now, I said earlier that there's a number of reasons why the church, you know, maybe finds itself, as Snodgrass said, ineffective, ineffectual. Uh, but I think, um, I think this one challenges us with why that is so. I mean, I just think of the church today. I think of our church even. I mean, it's, it's great. Thank God for our community of faith. But, but are we, you know... Marking our world as, as when we read the book of Acts in many ways. There's so much more. We might engage our culture that we might expand the kingdom. And so my question is, where and how are we dropping the ball? Where are we missing it? You know, there's many places, but I'm going to focus upon this one out of the text. I'm going to shock some of you with what I say here. And, and I, I got to tell you this. I don't know that I fully understand this. Okay? As I've reflected upon the text, I've, 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 I've been pretty convinced of something regarding this. Paul gives us the blueprint for the church here in Ephesians 4. And as he does so, okay, when he gives us the blueprint, you, you tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me the goal, you know, the aim to which he's focusing us here is fullness of Christ. It seems to me, he says, you know, equip the saints, the saints build up the body to, to maturity in Jesus. Every individual mature in Christ. That seems to me to be the, the aim for which the church is to function. Here's what's going to sound strange to you. I just want you to consider, I'm wondering myself, if we have not put, now this is slicing the onion pretty thin, if we have not put mission to the world ahead of maturity in Christ. Now I know it's both and. I want you to consider what Paul says here. Think about what he's saying. 
when the individual and the community of faith attains maturity in Christ, Christ's likeness in character and behavior and attitude, when that's attained, and I don't think he's speaking here in particular of like, oh, I'll only be in heaven. No, on earth, when that's attained, when there's maturity in Christ, listen, the church will influence the world. Can't help but. But we influence out of maturity. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been influenced positively? Have you ever been moved toward godliness, moved toward truth and what's right by any level of immaturity? Has, that, has any level of immaturity, whatever it may be, has that ever prompted you to God? No, it just doesn't. But I'll tell you, maturity does. And that achieves a lasting change, I believe. When maturity in Christ is achieved, okay, out of maturity, mission, out of maturity, make disciples of all nations, out of maturity, care for widows, orphans, and the poor, out of maturity, engage the culture with a biblical worldview. Don't do it out of immaturity because you won't do anything. If you write anything down today, maybe you'd write this down and consider it with me. It seems to me influence, I'm talking about biblical, lasting, deep influence, is a byproduct of maturity. I must say this, if there was ever a man who changed the world in his day, Paul, would you say? My goodness. And Paul was not confused about why he was put on the planet. In his own words, listen, he says this, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. We proclaim him, Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Same word as mature. For, for this purpose, that every man might mature in Christ, for this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Listen. Oh, Paul is out to change the world. Yes, because that's what the gospel does. Mm. But he knew it would be as he matured people in the faith. They couldn't help but change the world. I'm so glad today we come to the Lord's table. I'm going to ask the ushers to pass the elements, if you would. You guys go ahead and start passing the elements, and uh, I'm going to talk as they do. It's such an appropriate conclusion to this text and message. I'm going to wrap it up even as we take the Lord's table. If you're a guest of ours, you are welcome to participate in the Lord's table. If you've placed your faith in Christ, it's because that's what we're doing. We're symbolic. So, so when you take that bread and cup, you're saying, I, be I believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it was for me. Now, if that's true of you, please take the Lord's table. I want you to take the cup and the bread, and I'm going to invite you to hold them, okay? So I just want you to take it and hold it. And as you do, let me continue to ask you to consider a number 
of things. As you hold the bread and you hold the cup, it is a wonderful reminder, is it not? Of the cost, the cost for your redemption and gifting. It's because in the bread and cup, we remember Jesus Christ's body broken. His blood was shed. What a price paid to redeem us. Not just redeem us, but to gift us. When you hold that bread and that cup, it's also, you know, a a, a great and true reminder When you chew it, swallow it, you drink it, you know, just the physicality of it. Um, Don't you think, you know, Jesus lives in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit indwelt you, he gifted you. So you're saying, really, when you take the bread and cup, I'm gifted. There's no denying it comes with belief in Christ. And as you sit with the bread and cup, we also, Paul says, we're actually proclaiming that Christ is coming again. How about that? So we're we're taking the bread and cup and we remember backward what he's done, but we also remember forward In doing this, he's coming again. Now, I want you to just think this. When he comes, will he find me faithful with the gift? Lord Jesus, thank you for your life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. Thank you for instituting and ordaining this practice of the Lord's table, we call. When we take this bread and this cup and we remember backwards and forward, we're actually proclaiming your your gospel until you come again and that you're coming again. With bread in hand, we say thank you for giving your life that we might live and in so doing, gifting us. Take and eat the bread.
And with this cup, we're reminded that your blood was not the blood of bulls and goats that covered sin, but the blood of the Son of God, pure, perfect, and precious, that removes sin, that truly and wholly and fully satisfies the wrath of God against transgression. You shed it for us. And in taking this cup, we're mindful that we are forgiven. We are clothed in righteousness. And we're gifted. Take and drink. May I invite you to stand, please. You've got the cup in your hand. I want you to hang on to that. You can drop it as you leave. But there's, you know, I just want you holding that because it's a reminder of what we've just done. I asked you earlier to, 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 to imagine a billion-dollar foundation that never gave a gift. And we all went, there's no way. And the truth is, yeah, that's, that's not what it was made for. Or uh, the idea that what we do with a gift tells us everything about ourselves, what we think of the gift and the gift giver. And, I, and I'm having us hold that tension because I think it's a healthy tension to make us mindful that we've been gifted. What, what do we what do, I do with it? I'm going to have you do something here at the very end that's going to make you a bit uncomfortable. But... Uh, it's what the gospel does, you know, it really does. It, it comforts us and all that, but you understand it also makes us uncomfortable to move us toward godliness. There's a spiritual reality, okay, that often doesn't come out in a physical reality. And the truth is that spiritual reality is just as true as any physical reality. So we're going to put some physicality on the spiritual reality. I want you to turn to someone around you. It can be a family member. It can be a friend. It, you know, it doesn't have to be a stranger. It could be a stranger. And even if you're a guest here, this is still applicable for you in light of the body of Christ. I want you to turn to someone, and I just want you to look at them, and I want you to say, I can't grow unless you use your gift. Just turn to someone and say that. I can't grow unless you use your gift. You tell them that. Now, I want you to do one other thing, okay? I want you to find someone different, and I want you to say this to them. I'm gifted to serve you. Just find someone you don't know. Whether you're in the church, you need to tell them, I'm gifted to serve you. Just tell them that. Now, how was that? Uh, awkward, weird, <laughs> different. I want, I want your shoes and your shirt. Can I tell you what that was? That was true. We don't act like it. We don't live like it as a church as much as we can. But that's what's true. Let me tell you something. When that spiritual truth 
becomes, as all spiritual truth needs to, physical reality, we change the world. (laughs) And we actually find our lives in ways we never imagined. That's what's true. God bless.